Hey guys, Hannah here with the first episode of IR Sweet Talk, a mini-series from the Sound of IR podcast covering current events in and outside the IR suites. Real quick before we dive in, you're probably asking why we started this new mini-series. And the answer is to bring you some more relevant content in a quick and casual way. In these episodes hosted by myself and other members of the production team, we'll be discussing things like trending IR Twitter topics you don't want to miss, recent landmark publications, and general ideas in medical education. We hope that with these episodes, you can stay current with the IR world and have some impressive conversations with your attendings, interviewers, colleagues, parents, whoever. So thanks for joining and enjoy. Today, I am here with... Darina DeSoma. Hey. And Ben Rausch. Hey, guys. And our topics for today include recent developments on peripheral vascular disease, palliative IR, and patient-centered care, along with a hashtag USMLE pass fail. All right. So how much do you guys know about the endovascular treatment and the devices used in peripheral arterial disease? Not much. I'm hoping to learn more about that upcoming episode in CLI that you guys just recorded. So uh, give us some updates. What have you heard? Yeah, great plug there. I like that. <laughs> There's new drug-eluting balloons and drug-eluting stents being used in the femoral and popliteal arterial system, even farther down in the tibials. One of the problems is there was a recent article that came out in the Journal of the American Heart Association. This came out in December of this last year about the risk of death following application of paclitaxel-coated balloons and stents in the femoral popliteal artery of the legs. So first off, I'd, I'd recommend everyone go check out this article so they can kind of understand what's going on. There's been some randomized controlled trials, and this is a systematic review of a bunch of randomized controlled trials. Compared to the control group, there is a higher mortality rate in those that received paclitaxel-coated devices. That obviously isn't a good thing. And there's been a lot of debate in the endovascular world, especially on Twitter. And in the show notes, we'll make sure we include a link to this. But it's kind of surprising when you hear about mortality relating to a treatment that's supposed to be new and supposed to make a big difference. Have both of you guys seen what the discussion going on on Twitter? To be honest, Ben, I haven't really kept up to date with the conversation on Twitter And I think in general, this has been pretty surprising to me because um, in theory, you would think that the uh, drug-coated stents and balloons would help considering if, uh, you know, I know we have pre-meds listening, so um, I feel the need to explain the reason why they're even used is to prevent neointimal hyperplasia, correct? Yeah. So in theory, it seems like it would work. And so um, I was just really fascinated to hear you just say that this new study says otherwise. Like uh, Hannah said at the beginning... We have a CLI episode that'll be coming out in the next week or two. And if you guys haven't listened to our PAD episode from last year, I highly recommend it. But the the big thing that a lot of people are saying is we we should not be changing practice right now from one paper with a retrospective review. It shouldn't be the only reason we change practice. There's also some other meta analyses that show no difference in mortality. So really for all of our listeners, we're gonna direct you guys towards this article and also to a conversation on Twitter that between Dr. Lesney, um, Dr. Mattisari, who's come on the pod before and some mm-hmm. others. And hopefully that should shed some light for our listeners and also for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Definitely. Cool. So shifting gears a little bit, I'm going to step back a little bit and talk about a trend in IR, which is palliative IR. And uh, basically for our listeners, what that means is kind of like pain management or making someone feel better 
recently in JVIR and also IR Quarterly, which is SIR's magazine that they publish. Both of those journals published articles revolving around pain management and IR's role in that. And it's becoming more prevalent because there are new modalities that IRs can utilize to help uh, patients who are uh, in pain. And so we have links also to all these articles and um, Twitter conversations in the description box. You guys should definitely check it out. But we all know that there's the opioid epidemic happening right now. And a lot of patients are being prescribed opioids and becoming addicted or increasing their tolerance levels. So there's a big need for a different type of treatment or another way to help these patients who are in chronic pain. Yeah, Hannah, I think it's really interesting because for those of us interested in IR, a lot of us have heard of some of these different treatments before, but that article you talk about that was citing the opioid crisis kind of comes at it from uh, the opposite perspective or a different perspective of what it's like for the patient and how we have this opioid epidemic or this crisis and the role IR can play in many different ways in helping to alleviate pain generally, but also in specific situations like cancer. Right, exactly. And so the article in IR Quarterly talks about a specific patient who has had previous back surgery and has just been debilitated by chronic back pain and essentially was referred to an IR as a last resort. And so I think hopefully one of the takeaways from this uh, from the, a couple of these articles in this discussion is that maybe IR isn't the last resort for pain management and can possibly be, you know, one of the first options for referral. So when talking about techniques for IR palliative care, do you guys know of any or can think of any on the top of your head that you guys have seen or guys have read about in terms of pain management that IRs can give to patients? Yeah, I, I know, Narina, you probably have seen on your away rotations um, some of these as well, but you know, there's, there's kyphoplasties, vertebroplasties, and then there's some ablative therapies as well, as well as injections. Mm-hmm. I don't know, have you seen CT-guided injections on your rotations, Narina? So I've seen CT-guided injection of alcohol um, oh, into cool. um, liver tumors. So I think that was, it wasn't necessarily palliative, although a lot of, it was to help cure the um, cancer. But I think palliative I mean, it is palliative in that any symptoms that they are having from compression, um, it can certainly alleviate that. So, I mean, I just, I'm so excited about the role of IR in palliative care. I think it's, we have a huge opportunity. I agree. And a lot of these papers emphasize the fact that it's sort of immediate, you know, like you can do a nerve block or you can, you know, do a kypho and the patient feels immensely better the day of the procedure, which is kind of really cool. Yeah. That's amazing. It's really awesome. I've seen a couple of these like kyphos and injections where you have these people that have been in pain forever and, uh, you know, it makes such a big difference. And this article you're talking about in the IR quarterly, it comes at it from a different perspective of the opioid crisis. Is that right, Hannah? Right, exactly. So the article revolves around how IRs can possibly and really effectively help abate the opioid crisis by uh, using some of these other modalities to completely sometimes erase the use of needing opioids and, and perhaps using a Tylenol every now and then in the, in the case of this patient that they described in the article. Wow. Yeah. So another technique that was recently published in JVIR's December issue is the idea of denervation. So basically knocking out nerves that are causing pain. 
And uh, the study by Zhang et al. is about seven cancer patients. They all have abdominal pain with a VAS pain score of above five. So basically for the study, they took a radiofrequency ablation strode and uh, placed that device close to the celiac and the SMA and uh, ran it for a specific parameter. And after that, the patients felt immensely better. And essentially, just from this one procedure, quality of life scores skyrocket and VAS pain scores plummet as well, which is amazing. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. It seems like this is something where it's been done before with like ethanol um, at this celiac plexus. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like the device that this group in China has been using is, is pretty interesting. So it'll be cool to see what comes from this in the future. Exactly. And some of the endpoints that they were using to measure the success is like decrease of narcotics. After three months, everybody had decreased their intake of opioid and pain meds. And also most patients reported better and longer sleep and more enjoyment and leisure activities. So essentially a win-win-win for IR and pain management. I think too, these patients that were in this study, this is some pretty intense cancers, pancreatic, cervical cholangiocarcinoma. So these are people that it can make really a big difference on their life. Exactly. And the age ranges from 30 years old up to 75. So these are some young people who have a lot of life left to live. And uh, IR is making a difference and uh, with some new technology. So it's pretty cool. Oh, that's great to hear. So guys, I was uh, able to take a look at an ACR bulletin um, uh, entitled radiologists are entering the conversation on end of life care to support patient decision-making at a difficult time. And with Hannah, what you were talking about with um, palliative care, I feel like this is was a good segue into what this article was talking about. Oh, wow. So have you guys ever encountered IRs or even diagnostic radiologists talking with patients about end-of-life care? Never in such certain terms. Like it's usually about a treatment like in the IR world with mm-hmm. you know, doing an ablation or injection, but never like actually having the end-of-life care conversation. Right. And I don't know, Hannah, you're still at the beginning stages of your uh, medical school or IR training as an M2, but have you had any, uh, have you heard of anything like this? Probably echo what Ben said. I, you know, when a physician is talking about treatment plans and I think the patient understands that this particular case I'm thinking of was a uh, liver cancer patient Mm -hmm. and it was pretty extensive, but it was never mentioned like end of life care. It was mainly just, okay, here are options, very matter of fact kind of this is what we can do and this is where we can go from here. Yes. And that's pretty much mostly the extent that I've seen it too. This article is so interesting because it talked about IR's role in starting those conversations or at least being a part of those conversations, especially with interventional oncology, because we're part of a care team anyways. We're doing tumor boards and we're participating in the care with other consultants or we are a consultant on the team. So Uh, This article just basically talks about how IRs and radiologists in general could benefit not only for our own fulfillment from our career, but also for the benefit of our colleagues and patients by um, learning how to be more empathetic and getting involved in uh, committees and helping to deliver bad news or be a part of that conversation um, in general. They talked about how some patients um, might really like to have the radiologist there to help explain what they see on the scans, to help them come to terms with their diagnosis. Yeah, I know in the world of mammography, this is pretty common, but just in general, having this be more common in in the radiology world sounds like a great idea, but it makes me wonder if it's something that should be more integrated into training. 
I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, I completely agree. There's another article that ACR Bulletin had posted about the power of communication and ACR's new curriculum for radiology residents. So it is an experiential exercise in patient and family-centered care. And this was launched actually in August of 2018. Had you guys heard of this? Because I actually uh, hadn't. I had not. (laughs) Me neither. I had not. Okay. So uh, I think it's really great. I mean, the practice of delivering bad news is not something new. And so it makes sense that that would get brought into the radiology curriculum. So I don't know if you guys ever had training as a medical student in breaking bad news. I had one and I I thought it was one of the most beneficial things in, in the simulation center. Yeah. So just having some tangible, some things make sense, like uh, sitting down and um, making sure everyone's there and um, starting out with what they know. But these are all things that that radiologists, even though they don't necessarily see patients all day, depending on what specialist you are, you certainly will encounter it. So um, the article basically talks about um, high professional stakes and low experience level within radiology in general. You know, um, it's really important for us to have uh, good conversations with patients because these are the conversations that they're going to potentially remember and relive for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. And so combined with potentially low experience level, it makes for a really bad combination. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've heard it said a lot that our normal day in the hospital is our patient's worst day of their life. Mm -hmm. And so it, it kind of puts things in perspective. And I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I think that it's really cool to see um, ACR and IR in general just pushing towards this more clinical perspective. And I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're becoming doctors, we're, we're treating people, not diseases. So I think it's really cool to see both of these specialties move towards that. And I mean, with, with this uh, new curriculum, there's going to be you know, more pressure to be a better doctor. And I think that's, that's a good thing. I think this is all good in helping us become more personable and more able to reach our patients at a personal level. I agree. Um, and just to summarize, so the curriculum is an interactive curriculum. So they're simulating interactions, this role play, and that um, it is customizable because every program is different. So some programs might want to hire local actors in the community to come in and be those patients or even train other residents to help play those roles. So I think that's kind of interesting. And then just a final point, uh, just circling back to the palliative care, the article mentioned that uh, radiologists should consider including in their report a suggestion for a palliative care consult. If you're the radiologist diagnosing um, extensive malignancy that's metastatic. that's interesting. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting, you know? So anyways. (laughs) It's a little more than correlating clinically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then at RS Today, I also heard some discussion about even putting your, your phone number in your reads just to help close any loops of communication with them, with other physicians. So. Oh, that makes sense. Awesome. Yeah. So the last topic, Hannah, you have yet to take step one. That correct? is correct. It is coming for me quickly. Yes. Okay. So really, this topic is something that touches everybody in medicine, but any change that would come to this topic probably won't affect any of us. Right. Directly. So there is a big conversation that started on Twitter. And I mean, this has been ongoing for a very long time. But on Twitter over the last couple of weeks, there's been a huge discussion that was started by a couple of attendings about uh, USMLE in general, but specifically step one, and how in their eyes, they feel like it should be pass fail. So Norena and Hannah, I want to get you guys' thoughts and opinions on that. So just on first pass, the idea of that sounds 
really nice as a medical right? student. Like, oh, <laughs> yes. that would be great. But because I feel like being competitive, I put that in quotes, is such a almost like a construct. And, you know, what does it really mean to be competitive anyways? Like what step mm-hmm. score qualifies you as being competitive? And I know there's averages for every specialty, but I almost feel like it's detrimental to really focusing on what really does make you a good doctor, which I think is hard work and uh, ability to work well with others. And But on the flip side, I also think STEP is a good way to compare medical students from all different med- types of medical schools, because some medical schools might have better reputations and more like power in terms of networking. And I think it, it's also an, an opportunity for medical students from maybe medical schools that don't have as g- great of a reputation to show that they can perform really well. So it's, it's almost like the pros and cons, you know? Yeah, totally. And I think one of the people that I recommend to our listeners to follow is Brian Carmody. I hope I didn't butcher his name. He's at Eastern Virginia Medical Center. He's a professor there and a pediatric nephrologist. And he breaks down the financial implications of of USMLE and also how it affects medical education itself. Because, you know, like everything you were saying, Marina, it also reminds me, like, what would I have done differently in M1 and M2 if step one was going to be pass-fail? Like, would I have paid more attention to the actual lectures and less to, like, cramming first aid and... right you know, all, all the like flashcard stuff and sketchy micro mm-hmm. and all of that, you know, what would I have done differently? So sure. I highly recommend to all our listeners to check it out. So part of the reason that this is a big debate going on is because there was an op-ed piece done in the academic journal of medicine um, by some medical students saying how step one should be pass fail and the benefits for medical education. There was a response published in the journal from the executives from NBME and the CEO. So there was a response to that op-ed piece by the NBME executives. Have you guys heard about this? Actually, I also saw this on Twitter as it was blowing up the internet. And essentially, I think you're referring to the Netflix quote. Yes, the the Netflix quote. (laughs) So here is the Netflix quote as told by one of the CEOs of NBME. He says, If students reduce time and effort devoted to preparing for step one, they may indeed devote attention to other activities that will prepare them to be good physicians. This would arguably be an ideal outcome for such a change. However, if students were to devote more time to activities that make them less prepared to provide quality care, such as binge watching the most recent Netflix series or compulsively updating their Instagram account, this could negatively impact residency performance and ultimately patient safety. Drop the mic. Uh, Hey, well, here's the thing. There's so much wrong with that statement, and it's been broken down very well on Twitter. So I won't belabor the point here, but needless to say, that's extremely insulting to I think all medical students. I agree. And the the point of this and us bringing this up is not to bash MBME in any way. It's just to let you guys, as listeners, know what's happening in the world of medical education and just. Be aware of the conversations happening. Exactly. And recognizing the topics of conversation. And mind you, this is this was all brought up by attendings on Twitter and that, that have kind of spurred this conversation. This isn't just like a bunch of medical students who didn't do well in step one being upset. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. So this is a, another question. So as we're talking about just how competitive and 
getting residency spots has become and the inflation of the importance of step one. I feel like making a step one pass fail would be a great way to encourage learning for the love of learning and not just to um, try to get a residency spot. But do you think that also like fixing the root of the problem would be expanding the spots in residency? Um, you know, I feel like that's yeah. like the root problem, you know, is like, that's why step one has been become so uh, inflated and in yeah. its importance. Yeah. I, I think that's, um, th- that's a definitely a good point. There's another um, attending on Twitter, Dr. Shannon McNamara, her Twitter handles at Shannon O'Mac. And she talks a lot about that, okay. about the, how this focus on step one has changed what the perspective of, of medical education is and mm-hmm. how with the change to pass fail, th- there'd be this like higher plane of medical education that we could achieve. Mm-hmm. But yes, to answer your question, I think, I think that could alleviate some problems, especially in mm-hmm. highly competitive fields. But then there's the whole supply and demand issue, which goes beyond the scope of what we were trying to cover today. Sure. Yeah. So Hannah, as someone who hasn't taken step one yet, what do you think about this whole situation? So right now, the only thing that I can think about is how much I'm spending on materials and also the exam itself, which kind of sucks because we all know that step one is mandatory. It's, you know, the thing that residency looks at when you're applying. So the fact that it's not supplied by anybody else other than this company, it kind of gives them the ability to name their price on it, which is kind of unfair. So... That's kind of where I'm at, just buying more textbooks and more uh, study materials. So. Yeah, I feel for you, Hannah. One day, step one will be past you, and then you'll have your next standardized test to worry about. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> In a year, we can complain about step two, CS and CK together. Excellent. <laughs> With that, we can wrap it up. You guys can find the links to the topics we talked about in the description box. That's the links to the Twitter conversations, the papers that we quoted. We encourage you guys to check them out because we just briefly talked about them. So give them a good look. And thanks for joining us on IRC Talk. If you'd like to contact us with any questions or feedback about this mini-series, please feel free to email us at thesoundofir at gmail.com. <laughs>